This is the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, the show for real estate investors, stock traders, and business owners. We help you keep more of what you earn and protect what you've built. Let's get started. Hey guys, it's Toby Mathis with the Anderson Business Advisors Podcast, and today I have Kareem Hanafi on. Uh, Kareem, welcome, first off. Thank you. It's great to be here. And I'll let you do your inter- introduction, but I'll just give the the broad strokes. Cream heads up a very busy philanthropic division at Anderson Business Advisors and oversees all the nonprofits that gets formed. But before he became uh, one of our attorneys, he actually worked as an attorney for the service, as in the IRS. So why don't you give us a kind of a, a two-minute summary of, of your career and what you focus on and what you do for us? Yeah, so I basically... Is- Toby says I was working at the IRS. I was there for about five years when I started off my career coming out of law school, thinking I wanted to work for maybe a, a big five accounting firm, which was the big five at the time, mm-hmm. thinking I'm going to do, you know, corporate tax returns or at least, you know, make recommendations regarding corporate structures and corporate entities. But then it turned out there was a position available at the IRS in the tax exempt division basically just working with nonprofit organizations, 501c3 organizations, reviewing applications for exemptions and reviewing the tax returns. So I just applied for that position, was offered the position. So I worked there for about five years and, of course, just involved in reviewing applications, mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of applications to all types of 501c3 organizations. And then after that, I went into private practice and I've been there for about 15 years I joined Anderson two years ago in 2021. And since then, I've been working with close to about over 500 organizations for sure, maybe close to a thousand nonprofit organizations. And we've done applications for exemption for over 500 nonprofit organizations at this point. So a heavy workload, a lot of clients that we're working with and dealing with, but it's very, very rewarding to say the least. So worked with a lot of different types of organizations all over in terms of the range of types of activities they'd like to do. And it's been extremely challenging, but very interesting too, to learn about the types of things that they want to do, the types of missions they want to carry out and accomplish, and and just the things that they've been doing out there in the public sector, trying to help those who are in need of some type of help or assistance. And uh, I I mean, yeah, we we are one practice. There's millions of nonprofit organizations. I think they get underutilized. My personal belief is that if people understood how powerful they, they are, that they would actually gravitate towards it. There's a, there's a reason you cannot find a wealthy family that, that does not have a foundation. I mean, it's really tough. And it's because it's one of the few tools out there where you can actually do social change. You get a lot of personal benefit too, and a lot of personal satisfaction. So that's what I want to dive into today. You gave me a wonderful list. And so I'm going to call this the nine advantages or benefits of establishing a family foundation. And I want to be really specific about this because we're talking about a family foundation, not a public charity under this circumstance, right? You're talking about, hey, I'm setting something up that's going to be a giving organization or are you using them as both? Well, it can be both because, you know, we we work with a lot of nonprofit organizations and a lot of clients who use the term foundation their whole family is part of the foundation, but they're actually public charities. So they could be a public charity. They could be a private foundation. You know, it doesn't really make a difference what you're going to be. What matters is you will be a 501c3. And what we want to advise the clients is what's going to be the best thing for you 
considering what you want to do in terms of your activities. So we're kind of looking at your goals and your objectives, and then we're going to recommend exactly how it should be structured to make it easy on you. Because the only thing that they want to do, and we've heard this time and time again, the only thing they want to do is do charitable good, do, do a charitable, you know, serve a charitable purpose and, and just go out there and do the work. They don't want to have to deal with any of the administrative work, the, the, the paperwork that's going to be involved in it. We want to do it for them, but we want to make it easy on them as well. So that's kind of our goal and our objective with it whenever we're, we're working with the clients. Let's dive into some of the benefits. Be- before I do, I want to do, do the 10,000 foot view that whenever we look at these things, we look at them from an asset protection attack standpoint and a legacy planning. This actually checks all three boxes. I know, I know we're going to focus primarily on the tax benefits because they're so massive, but the beautiful part about foundations, guys, is that you technically don't own them, which means they can't be taken away from you. And that's and, and there's a whole variety of reasons, and Kareem's going to get into, I think we're going to focus on nine benefits, Kareem. I, I, think, I think that's the, uh, that's the magic number for today. But, but they really are quite a phenomenal piece that a lot of folks think it's the realm of only the wealthy. Do you think that's true, Kareem? Do you think that only rich people use foundations? Do you think that there's a place for it for everyday Americans too? No, we, we've seen all, you know, it's, it's all shapes and sizes. It's not just for the wealthy. I think once upon a time, especially when I started working out and even when I was with the IRS, number one, the private foundations seem to be for the wealthy, but the public charities seem to be for a large group. They were primarily wealthy people as well. But I've noticed, you know, over the years, especially over the last 15 years, seeing a thousand organizations, that's not the case at all. Certainly the ones that are at the top and the ones that you hear about the most are the wealthiest ones. But, you know, we're over a million and a half nonprofit organizations. So it's not just the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. There are a million, there are over a million other organizations and, and they're just, you know, many of them in terms of the size mm-hmm. and, and, and the, the funding that they receive. It's all over the place. And the founders and the donors who are part of it are not wealthy individuals. It's just those who have a passion for what they want to do. They've had a dream of doing this and wanted to carry something out. So they've decided this is what they want to do by setting up a nonprofit and carrying out those charitable missions. Well, let's, let's talk about the benefits. And uh, do you have a list there? Yeah. Let, let, let's knock out what, what are the big benefits? Let's go over number one. Obviously, the biggest and the best, you know, the most important for many is that it does reduce your taxable income. So, you know, obviously, if you have adjusted gross income, you're going to probably have to end up paying some taxes to the government. So by making a contribution to a 501c3 organization, then your contributions are tax deductible. So, you know, many of us are going to have to pay taxes. You have that adjusted gross income and it shows exactly, you know, it translates to what your taxable income is going to be. And for many of us, you will have to pay taxes rather than give it to the government. Who knows what's going to happen with that money? Why not give it to a charity? Give that money to a nonprofit organization, one that you have formed, one that you've set up. It can reduce your taxable income, and then you can have some control over what's going to happen with the money that goes into that charitable organization. What are the limits of how much I can donate on an annual basis to my own charity? 
So if you give to a public charity, any cash that you make a donation to, it, you're limited to 60% of your adjusted gross income if it's a public charity and it's for cash. If you make a donation to a private foundation, a cash contribution, you're limited to 30% of your adjusted gross income. Now, if you give non-cash contributions, for example, stocks, it could be real estate, it could be crypto, um, you're limited to 30% of your adjusted gross income when you're donating to a public charity, and it's 20% if you're donating to a private foundation. Yeah, and, and so if somebody's been like, let's say they they have a ABC Incorporated stock, you know, maybe they got some vested stock interest from an employer, they've been holding it for 15, 20 years, and now it's worth a lot more. So let's say they that, you know, you got it for a hundred bucks and now it's worth a thousand. You don't have to sell that and then donate the proceeds. You could get a thousand dollar deduction just by donating that share, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you were to sell the stock first, you would have to pay taxes and then you would make the contribution. So it reduces the amount that's going to go to the nonprofit organization. The flip side is you can just give it directly to the nonprofit organization you can deduct the fair market value so you get the benefit of it. You don't have to pay taxes on that capital gains or the appreciation of the stock. So you get to, you can deduct it, um, the full amount. And the nonprofit gets 100% of that instead of getting an amount after you've paid your taxes on it. So they get the full benefit. You also get the full benefit. So it goes, it works both ways. So I think you might have just hit benefit number two there because it is, a, a, what is number two? So it avoids a high capital gains. So you can donate appreciated stock to a nonprofit or an appreciated asset to the nonprofit. You avoid having to pay capital gains taxes on that. And you can get a deduction instead of, instead of having to pay taxes, you would get a deduction for the fair market value of what you contributed to the nonprofit. Yeah. And let's just use our example. Let's just say you had a piece of real estate. You've had the home for 30 years. You've fully depreciated it. You bought it for a hundred. It's worth five hundred thousand now, and you're like, "Oh, Jiminy Christmas!" You know, maybe I'll give it away. Maybe I'll give it. Maybe I'll sell it to somebody. If you give it to your charity first, let's say you do a, it would be worth a five hundred thousand dollar deduction. But you might not be able to use that all. You can carry some of that forward, right? For how many years? Yeah, for five years. You can carry it over for five years, so right. you don't lose it. It's just deferred. So let's you don't say, lose yeah. So let's say we gave away a five hundred thousand dollar property. Mm-hmm. you would get a $500,000 deduction and it would be limited to 30% of your adjusted gross income. If it was to a public charity, it would be 20% of your adjusted gross income if it's to a private foundation. And we'll get into what yeah. the differences are in a little bit. Yeah. But the most important thing is you have no recapture and no, for, you know, you don't have to pay any capital gains. So you're just, you're just getting a flat out deduction. All right. Yeah. Number three, what's, a, what's the third benefit? Let's assume under the scenario you know, you have $100,000 in stocks mm-hmm. when you bought it. You paid 100000 Now it's worth, or let's say let's say you paid 50000 Now it's worth $100,000. Mm-hmm. So you're going to donate the 100000 in stock. You're going to avoid paying taxes on it when, when you do that. You donate it to the nonprofit. Now the nonprofit gets $100,000. And imagine it grows to $200,000. So now it's doubled in value. So you never pay taxes when it was donated. And you don't pay taxes when it goes up from 100000 to $200,000. So you get this benefit as well. So it grows tax efficiently. It grows to 200000 and you decide to sell the stock. You don't pay taxes on any capital gains, whether it's stocks, whether it's real exempt. estate, 
Exactly. Whether it's crypto, you don't have to pay any taxes on that when you sell those assets. And the beauty of it is, let's assume that it's $200,000. If you were to pay taxes, that could be the equivalent to, let's say, $20,000, for example. You may have to pay taxes. Instead of doing that and giving it to the government, now you can take that money and use it for whatever charitable reasons that you want, whether it's going to be to pay someone to come and work for the organization or whether it's to distribute it and make distributions or spend money to help, you know, to serve a charitable purpose. So there's many benefits of getting this and growing it tax-free when you sell it tax-free, and then you can use it for a charitable benefit as well. Fantastic. And we'll get into some of those. I'm sure there's lots of questions being posed right now, but let's go to number four. What's the fourth benefit? The fourth is you can invest in stocks, crypto, real estate. And again, the profits are tax-free. So it kind of goes into what was mentioned before about growing the tax, growing the assets tax efficiently. So again, imagine that you, you're, you're, it has doubled, tripled, or quadrupled in value. Let's say you want to, you receive the assets at, in stocks and it's worth $200,000 and you sell it, you don't pay taxes. And now you've decided that you want to use it, say, for affordable housing. You want to use it for housing, for real estate investing. You can take the 200000 put it into that. You can generate rental income. It's tax-free. You can sell, and if you end up selling it at a profit, it's also tax free. So all this money is going to be recycled. Basically, it's going to be used within the nonprofit. So the the return on your investment is going to be much higher. It's much more efficient. Again, you know, you get a better return on your investment by being able to do that and not having to pay any taxes on that. So you have many you have many options in, in, as to how you can invest that money. Yeah. And uh, easy math, there's the rule of 72, which means if you have an interest rate, you're going to double, I mean, it's going to double, divide that interest rate into 72. And that's, that's the period of time it'll take to double. So the S&P annual growth is just over 10% since its inception, the 1920s, I think it's what it was. So that means it's doubling every seven years. So you put a hundred thousand in 14 years from now, that's 400,000. It doubled in year seven to 200,000. That 200 doubled to 400,000. 21 years, that 400,000 is 800,000. But you haven't paid any tax. You're not having to pay tax. You could be selling and buying throughout that entire time. It does not matter anymore because you do not have a taxable event inside of an exempt organization. That's why these endowments like at Harvard and Princeton, all these things, they they get so huge. It's because they're not yeah. taxed. The growth is absolutely uh, compounding with no tax on it. It's just massive. So and you get to unlock that benefit. Hey, I think that was four. So what's number five? What's the fifth benefit? The fifth is your family can serve as board members. So, you know, m- m- many of our clients keep talking about this where they want to start this nonprofit. It's been their dream. Maybe they've been working so hard. You know, many people have this dream of what they want to do when they retire or when they're financially secure. And many of them, they talk about that nonprofit they want to set up, but not only for themselves, but they want to create that family legacy. You know, again, we all look to the Bill and Melinda Gates and we see what's what's been done and the impact it's had in society, both globally, internationally. And many people have that dream of wanting to do that, even if it's at a local level, but they want their family to be a part of that. So they want to get their families to be involved with it so that it'll have a lasting impact you know, again, everyone dreams of starting their own nonprofit or working for a nonprofit. So this is their chance to do that, you know, because they want to be able to give back and they want their family to be a part of it because anything that you see, the people that you help and that you benefit, 
it certainly has an impact and it's something that you're going to remember, especially for your family or for your kids. So they want their family to be a big part of it. So creating that family legacy is a big thing. And so so that's taxable though. Like if they're getting a salary, they're going to get paid money that's taxable to them, but the exempt organization can pay. I mean, again, I always look at this and think of it. It's exempt just like an IRA or a 401k, right? But when the money comes out, there could be a tax implication if you pay it out. Here you pay it out by having somebody work for the organization and then they would get a salary, right? Yeah. So, and that's the thing, if you're going to get paid for it, then you you will, you will have to pay taxes on it because you're just basically like an employee, um, whether it's W2 or 1099 as an independent contractor, you're going to have to pay taxes. But many of them start off really small, you know, at the very basic level where their kids are going to be working and serving as a volunteer possibly. But again, you can pay yourself if you want either way, but what they just want more than anything is for their kids to be a part of it or their family to be a part of this charity or this foundation. Yep. No, they get it. All right. So what, what's number six, six benefit? Six is that the family can maintain control of the foundation's purpose, grant making, or its future. So many people think that you can only do this within a private foundation, and that's not the case. You can also do this within a public charity. Perhaps you want to be permanent directors. You can always have some clause or some provision in there that allows you or your family members to be permanent directors of the nonprofit. It gives you a veto power, you know, and it, and it prevents others from trying to remove you without you having a say in that. Of course, our caution always is, and this isn't usually a problem, but we tell the clients, make sure that your number one purpose is that you want to, you're carrying out the fiduciary duties on behalf of the nonprofit. You're not being a permanent director and you're exercising your veto power just because you want to have the control, but you do have a vision that you want and you're doing it on behalf of the nonprofit as well as a fiduciary of it as well. And that's typically how it is. But they do want to be a part of it because, you know, it is their baby. This is something that they started with. They funded it. They helped it to become successful. The last thing that they want is for some other uh, board members who are unrelated outside parties come in and remove them from it after they work so hard to make it successful. Yeah, and this is a good time to talk about kind of what a nonprofit could be set up for because you could be, you know, scientific, educational, uh, social benefits, uh, animal uh, welfare, amateur sports. Like there's a lot of things that that are covered by charitable activities, uh, low-income housing, modern-income housing, residential-assisted living, recovery housing just in the real estate world, on, on, on the education side, just about everything. Like almost every university in the United States is, is an exempt organization. Just about every hospital is probably an exempt organization. The NFL for, for Jiminy Christmas was a charitable organization for a long time. Green Bay Packers still are, right? There's Major League Baseball, National Hockey League. These are charitable organizations. And you have those types of flavors that are actually doing something and then you have the other flavor, which is the family foundation, where you're not doing anything other than giving to those organizations, right? Yeah. So most private foundations, if you're a private foundation, are typically grant making. So you're just going to make contrib- you're going to make distributions to other 501c3 organizations. You are required as a private foundation to do that. You have to make distributions to other 501c3 organizations. But there are some, like a private operating foundation or, again, public charities may decide they want to carry out their own activities instead. So you imagine something like 
animal shelter or anything that's going to be educational, like we see museums, for example, as an example, they are carrying out their activities themselves rather than doing grant making. So they're carrying out these activities. So that's another option. We have a lot of, you mentioned about affordable housing and shared housing, for example. These are organizations that are carrying out their own activities rather than doing grant making, which is giving out to other organizations that are providing the affordable housing. So you can either do it directly or indirectly. So do I have to give money to other charities every year if I am a operating public charity? No, you don't. Private foundations, you're required to make to di- there's a payout requirement, basically 5% it has to go out of your total assets that you have, of your investment assets. So when you imagine that you're, you know, a, an organization, you're, you're, you're a foundation like the Bill and Melinda Gates, and you're talking about, you know, anywhere from, let's say it's $10 billion. I mean, you're talking about 200 million that you have to make in terms of, or I'm sorry, it's 500 million that you have to make in terms of distributions and payments. That's yeah. a lot of money, you know, that you have to do. And so it's 5% of your investment assets, but a nonprofit public charity, you're not subject to that same requirement. So if you have 10 billion in assets, you don't have to do that. Our recommendation has always been do some sort of spending, do some sort of payout. You know, you can do it again, giving to other organizations, or you can do it directly through your activities that you're spending. As we mentioned again, let's say it's the museum, anything that you spent with that. If you have an animal shelter, for example, something like that the money that you're spending to operate it, you know, to, to hire staff for that, all of that would be the, the, the same thing as spending it 5%, making it pay out to other organizations. So you can do it that way, but there is no requirement that you give 5%, but you know, the IRS will look and see if you have a lot of assets in there and you're not spending any of it, that could be an issue. So the recommendation is to spend something you just don't have to do 5% like private foundations do. You have a lot more leverage, leeway, you know, a, a lot more discretion of what you can do within a public charity than you can within a private foundation. Yeah. And the rule of thumb is public charities do stuff for the benefit of society. Private <laughs> foundations don't do anything except give money to the organizations <laughs> that do stuff for the benefit of society. And they have that 5% that they have to give on an annual basis. <laughs> If in doubt, contact us and we'll explain it. And then there's a hybrid, the private operating foundation that sits there in between that still does stuff that, that again, there's ways around those rules. So make sure you're talking to a professional like Kareem, which we'll post his information here uh, to make it really easy. All right. We're on to number seven, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So number seven is you can work for the foundation once you retire. And again, as I mentioned before, many people who are working have the 40 hour work weeks. 60 hour work weeks or even 70 or 80. Many of them just are dreaming of what they can do once they can relax. And for many of them, besides traveling, what they want to do is they want to set up their own charity. They want to set up their own nonprofit and they want to go out there and make a difference. Whether it's through their own personal experience where they've worked or where they grew up, you know, there's always something that's had an impact on them and now they want to give back. And it's interesting, some of the clients that we meet, even one of them just recently that I spoke to, just just last week, he wants to give scholarships to uh, those who are in nursing school because he was a nurse and he understood the challenges they had to face of having to work full-time jobs to be able to pay for their student loans and to pay for their tuition. So he had said that one day, whenever he makes it, what he wants to do 
is he wants to provide a scholarship for everyone in that same university where he attended and where he graduated so that they don't have to carry that burden of having to work full time while also working at the hospital and having a full time course load as well and a family to take care of. It was just too much for them to handle. So he saw that he saw a problem. He found the solution. And what he wants to do is he wants to fix that. So many people have that sort of dream, whether it's their own personal experience or where they grew up as well. What they want to do is they want to do this and focus on this full time. And, and if I'm hearing you right, that means that during their peak earning years, they might be giving away assets or cash to their charity. And the charity might be there to do these grants uh, to individuals, to uh, scholarships to help individuals. But that doesn't mean that you can't take a salary out of it when you retire and give yourself an income. No, absolutely. Yeah. You can work there. And, and that's what many of them want to do as well. Um, they, they want to work for the nonprofit yeah. at some point once they retire, because they've all said the same thing too, is that, you know, I'm still going to need to receive an income at some point, even when I'm at retirement age, even though I'm going to be collecting some sort of benefits to my retirement plans, I'm still going to need to pay myself. So you can certainly do that. Which kind of brings up to, you know, the point number eight, which is you can pay yourself and your family and perhaps do it through a deferred compensation plan. So rather than paying taxes on this stuff now, you can defer it, you know, through a deferred compensation plan. And then once you are reaching retirement age, maybe at that point, you can pay yourself through the foundation or the charity. Yeah. So you're getting paid for work you're doing now, but you're deferring it to later. There are some rules to follow. I think it's 408 or one of those sections that says, hey, you actually have to kick more money in. You, have, you actually have to give somebody a reason to defer it. And there has to be some risk of loss of that and some things like that. But I'm sure that's what you guys handle. But that just means that I can work now and I can get paid later. So if I say, hey, I'm in a high enough tax bracket, I don't need the money. What I really want is to know that I have an ironclad future and I can get paid for the stuff I'm doing now uh, at some point when I retire. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's correct. And, you know, again, to your to your point, you, you, you may be in a higher tax bracket now. So you want to defer that salary, mm -hmm. which when you take that salary out, chances are you're going to be in a lower tax bracket at that point. So you will be paying less taxes if you wait until later to take the money out when you need it. And not now when you may not need it at this point. So, and, and of course, you know, as we all realize in life is that one thing you learn is that you wish you had more money at retirement. So this is certainly a way that you can do that, deferring that compensation because you don't necessarily need it now. It will, it will come in handy because, you know, we're all living longer as well. So this would be a good time to be able to take the salary out. It's kind of like a 401k or IRA then. You're getting the deduction now. It's invested. It's growing. In theory, you're, you're growing that money by investing inside the exempt organization, and then you just take it out later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I have same rules, exempt organizations. All right, what's number nine? What's the big number nine, our last big benefit to creating your own family foundation? The last one is, you know, for those who are wealthy, and you will be subject to estate and gift taxes, it can eliminate those potential estate taxes. Yep. So, you know, and, and you think about, as, as you mentioned before, once you put it in the nonprofit, it's owned by the nonprofit. So now it's in a separate asset. It's in a separate entity. It's not owned by you. It's not owned by your estate. It goes into the separate nonprofit. So even though you can be a big part of it, you can be a founder for this, 
you can have control. You can be a permanent director. Your whole family is part of it. You can take a salary out of this. You can control the direction of what you want to do with the organization, including the grant making activities that you're going to do, the funding, whatever you're going to do. You can do all of these things, and yet it's not in your estate. It's going to be in a separate entity that falls outside of your estate. Yeah. And if you think the estate taxes are nothing, they could be 40%. Right now we have the exclusion. It's up to, uh, what is it, about 13 million or thereabouts, 12, 12 point something million per spouse. But uh, a lot of people are going in excess of that. And then it also may go back down to when I first started, it was $600,000 exclusion and there was no portability between spouses. So your total yeah. amount that you could exclude was 600 grand for a married couple. It was really frustrating. They would lose the house, they'd lose assets. This way you could avoid that completely. Yeah. But, you know, keep in mind as well, it is high now, but, you know, it's it's set to expire at the end of 2025. So. And not making a political statement, but typically if you have Democrats in Congress and they're controlling Congress, you know, chances are they may not be pushing for this to be extended. Whereas if you have Republicans in Congress, they typically do want to extend this. So it's all going to depend on the political parties that are involved, too. But my feeling is it's probably going to go back. It could be five million, for example, in 2026. And I don't see it going back up again for a little bit. So this is a good way to get it out. You know, people use yeah. uh, irrevocable trusts and they do some gifting during their life and things like that. But here's a way where you could actually not use up your gift exclusion, but you can donate, exactly. get a tax deduction while you're donating and still get it out of your state. And again, play a large part of what you can do with this foundation as well. You have a lot of control and discretion as to what you can do, too. Yeah, we, th- there's a ton of benefits. We just listed nine. You could probably do, you know, even more as you start diving into the nuances. But, but let's talk about the stuff that's probably on people's minds, which is, hey, I'm thinking about this. What are my next steps? Well, your next steps are pretty simple, to be honest. You know, come up with a purpose or a mission. What is it that you want to do? And as Toby, as you'd mentioned before, you know, our clients do all types of work from the affordable housing to the shared housing to educational organizations. You know, they want to help children who are basically, they want to break the cycle of poverty to help them, you know, give them opportunities. So they want to teach them, for example, stuff like STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, because they believe that's where the future is going to be. So if you teach them this at an early level, then, you know, they could succeed both in high school, get scholarships to go to colleges, and then they're going to have jobs, you know, they can choose from. So it can break that cycle of poverty. So stuff like educational organizations as well is a popular thing. There's the humanitarian relief where you provide, you know, food, clothing, shelter, even, you know, cover medical expenses as well to help cover these expenses that low income families can't afford at this point. Um, so this is also a very popular one that we have. We mentioned about the scholarships before. There's all types of scholarships that are given um, to, to individuals. It's not just for nursing school, but for those coming out of high school. It could be those that are applying overseas as well, internationally. So these are many options too. We have many who are international clients and they want to give back to their communities or villages. A common one that we've seen a lot is building water wells in villages in Africa, which is quite fascinating, you know, just learning about this because of the fact that you can put one in a village, it can help, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people Kids stay in school rather than having to walk six, seven, or 10 miles to go pick up water so they can't go to school because they have to go there to stand in line to come back with the water. It helps with sanitation. It helps with cleanliness. 
people don't die because of the, the, the dirty water as well. So it's amazing the sort of impact and the things that we learn from the clients of what they can do. So there's all types of things that you can do to help, um, you know, because there's no doubt there's a need. There's a tremendous need. And we always see this all the time is that we have so many problems in our society that need to be fixed. And we always blame the government because they don't do anything about it. You know, it's severely un- underfunded in so many areas, but this is where nonprofits can come in and try to help fix these problems too. Yep. So you can do it. So articulate a purpose. And then what's uh, once you do that, then what's next up? So you would want to just set up the entity and it's pretty simple to do. You're just going to set it up at the state level. Um, you're just going to establish a nonprofit corporation. So it doesn't matter if you want to be a public charity or private foundation, you would just set it up as a nonprofit corporation at the state level. And that's something you could do for them if they reach out. Oh yeah, for sure. Easy to then, do. Then uh, what's number three? What's the third step there? Uh, create a board of directors, um, select your directors and select who the officers are going to be from those directors. Um, do you, do you, you need to have a board of directors or, or can you do it yourself? You need to have at least one director in a, you know, it depends on the state where you're going to incorporate. So Nevada only requires one director, but some other states required. So I could set it up if I was, to, if I was just setting something up and I wanted to do it and I wanted to, you know, have a receptacle for a donation, I could set it up and be my own director. Or do I need to have a bunch of third parties? You could be your own director. Yeah, absolutely. You can. Um, our, the founders, the, the donors are also become the directors of this nonprofit organization. And that's very standard. Almost every one of them do that. So All right. So what, so, so I have articulated a mission. I'm setting up the entity. I'm naming a board. Then what do I have to do? You would need to, you get an EIN, your tax ID number, prepare a set of bylaws, internal operations of, of how you're going to be operating mm-hmm. and the, the roles of the directors and the officers. And then we would apply for exemption with the IRS to become a 501c3. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, as you do that, only now, only once you apply for exemption with the, with the, with the uh, IRS, do you have to determine what your classification is going to be? Do you want to be a public charity? Or do you want to be a private foundation, which was something that we kind of discussed briefly at the very beginning. So you would have to select what you want to be Um, at the state level. You're just a nonprofit. They don't care whether you're public charity or private foundation. You're only a nonprofit is all it is. Contributions are not tax deductible. You get no benefits from that. And and I would just say that as a pull, pull people aside, there's special language you have to have in your in your organization, you do not set this up through one of those legal services online or stuff that it's, it's not going to happen. You actually have to put special language in the articles of organization. It's almost always going to be a corporation and you want to make sure that you're dealing with somebody who's done this. And then even more importantly, when you're doing the exemption, you're putting in what projected financials and you're doing all that. Correct. Yeah. 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 And, and, and we're very thorough with the description of the activities of what the nonprofit does, because that's an important part of it. You know, when I, when I worked at the IRS, I, I had to review the activities and then I had to prepare a memo to file. And that memo to file to me was probably the biggest hurdle because I have to articulate why this organization qualifies. They don't, they didn't do it and they don't do a good job of it. So I saw that and that was what was causing the delays with getting the exemptions. So from my end, 
not only am I explaining the activities thoroughly, but I'm explaining why it qualifies and not just saying it qualifies because it qualifies. I'm citing revenue rulings, which is the IRS's position for similar nonprofit organizations that applied. And their position is if you do these types of activities, you're going to qualify for exemption. So we cite these revenue rulings as part of our reasoning as to why it qualifies. So we're pretty thorough and detailed, and we use almost every character that's allowed within the application to be able to explain it. So I could say that I've been doing this for 25 years and have been around thousands of filings, and Kareem and his team right now are getting by far the best results of anybody I've ever seen applying for exemptions. And I mean, I can say this straight-faced, it's ridiculous how fast you guys are getting approvals because the average is about six to nine months, right? To, to get an exemption approved yeah. from the IRS. And yeah. in, in you're getting exemptions. What, what's your quickest exemption back? So they're currently reviewing applications from September right now, the beginning of September. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about almost seven months right now. This is on the IRS mm-hmm. website. We've been getting applications approved within three days and not just one or two. We've had over a dozen that have been approved within three to four days, and not just over a dozen, over a dozen within the past two months. So we are seeing just the, the results have been phenomenal, and, and it's mind-boggling. Boggling. I, I, I'm shocked at seeing the results too, but it's not just once. It's been happening many times. We're seeing three and four and five days. Right. They, they know your application, and they know you. And they're saying they're doing our job for us. This is really easy. And they're getting the, the easy work off and they're going back to the people that are trying to do their own. And uh, th- that's bogging down the system for sure. Yeah. I mean, th- that's the only explanation that makes any sense. I, I can't imagine because it's not happening for others. I, I, I can tell you that. Um, what's, what's the next step? So you set up, you get your exemption. You can actually start before you get that exemption back, right? Like you could start your business as soon as you file it. Yeah. You know, our recommendation is from step one. Once you've articulated your purpose, your mission, you know exactly what you want to do. You can start taking steps at that point to begin get, getting everything ready and lined up rather than waiting until you get the 501c3. You can start that from the beginning. The funding part, you can make a donation at any point that you want to. But if the applications are going to get approved as quickly as they have been for us, then you could always wait until you get the 501c3 and then fund it at that point if you wanted to. Uh, many people like to, to fund it before, usually because it's the end of the year and they want to, uh, you know, make a charitable contribution and get the deduction for that. But, yeah, and, just, and, and just to be clear with people, if you set up a foundation, the exemption, the exemption relates back to the date that it's filed with the state. So if I set up an organization on December 1st, and I file for exemption, even in January or February of the following year, and it gets granted, let's say the following December, it relates back to the first filing. Although Kareem's being, being, being straight with you guys too, it's, it's sometimes better to play it safe. Are you, have you had any get rejected? Have you had any exemptions where you've applied and you were not successful with the IRS or are you batting a thousand? No, it's been 100%. At, yep. at this point. So if you pass it through somebody like Kareem and his team, and I'm not saying you have to use them, but anybody who does this for a living could tell you whether you're going to get approved or not. And then it's just, hey, we're 
they're, they're getting it done. We've done thousands. We've never had one get, get uh, rejected. And then is, is, is there any other step that they need to take? When, once they get it, they put some money in it or they put some assets in it, then, then what do they do? Just operate? Yeah, but you know, we still have the, the issue and determining whether you want to be a public charity versus a private foundation. And then the other thing would be just to consider sort of the grant making, what your activities are that you want to do. You know, who are you going to target? Where do you want to operate? Do you want to, you know, look about making connections? So you're, you're only talking at this point about kind of what your next steps are in terms of operationally. What are you going to do? So you have all of these that you have to, you know, kind of focus on at this point. And um, those are the probably the most important. That sounds like a great video. I've set up a charity. Now what? And, uh, and, and we'll do that next time. Uh, for this one, we just hit nine benefits to establishing a family foundation, how you can use it. And you learn the steps, the next steps that you would take if that's resonating with you. Kareem, are there any other final comments you want to get? We, we, we went a little bit over, but I didn't want to stop. I thought this was really good information and that people would enjoy it. But is there anything else you want to tell people? Well, I, I want to just say this as a shameless plug is that, you know, there may be many questions and issues that you have that may delay you in being able to do this and apply for exemption or to set it up. But none of this is new to us. We've done this hundreds and hundreds of times. So it may be new to you, but it's not new to us. So I would say because we have the experience, we have the results, we have this nonprofit Q&A session that we also hold for only the nonprofit clients within Anderson. We do it exclusively for them. If you're looking for someone that you need to set up your nonprofit, then please come to us because we do have the experience um, and we have the results to prove that as well, that we can do it for you and get it done quickly and efficiently. And as one example, we actually got one from the time that it was set up at the state level to the time they got the exemption, it was 15 days total is all it took to get it. So, you know, we have that experience. We know what we're doing. We've done this hundreds and hundreds of times. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this information. Nine benefits to establishing a family foundation. We'll have you on again to talk about operating them. I really appreciate you. And I'll put your information in the show notes so that if somebody wants to talk to your nonprofit group, that they certainly can. But I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming in and hopefully giving some people some great ideas and some hope in, in implementing some things that will create some social change. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Show notes for links to everything mentioned in this episode can be found on our website at andersonadvisors.com slash podcast. Be sure you subscribe to our podcast. And if you are already a subscriber, please provide us a review of what you thought of this episode. 